Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the audio ministry of Lighthouse Baptist Church in Schenectady, New York. For more great content, please visit us at lighthousebaptist.org. Now let's open our hearts and minds to the Word of God. Kind of up in the air on, on what to bring. It's, it's, we're heading into Christmas season. I've done different schedules, different times. This will be the last message on Romans until the new year. Uh, just for time's well, not for time's sake. It's not for time's sake. It's just for theme's sake. And I, I just think that this time of year is a special opportunity uh, to focus in on, on the birth of Christ, the incarnation, when God became man. Just incredible, wonderful, wonderful truth. So we'll be spending, we'll be turning that direction at least in a couple weeks. I don't know what we're heading into next week, but the week after we'll be doing that anyway. And uh, so Romans chapter 11, as a quick uh, reminder, Romans, have you ever struggled with, uh, oh, just throw it out there. You know me, I'm super restrained, right? <laughs> you ever struggle with Calvinism? Because Hebrews 9, 10, 11, that's part of the reason why I want to finish this up. Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, Romans 9, 10, 11 are the chapters that are used to argue for Calvinism. I am not a Calvinist. And I'm, as I read through it with open eyes, without a preconceived conclusion, I find myself, find myself wondering, how do they even see it in there? Uh, there are some arguments you can make for it. It's very weak. And uh, so Romans, it's a theological treatise. It's really, it's a doc, doctrinal, doctoral doctrinal statement. And just, uh, and a, and a, just a five-second reminder, chapter one, never ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Never, ever ashamed. There are times when we feel like it, a little nervous, a little scared, maybe a little intimidated. Never ever be ashamed of, of the gospel of Christ. You'll never find anywhere, anyone who will ever say, I'm glad I was ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It'll never happen. And so we should never be. Chapter two was talked about its level playing field now. Paul was describing the Jew versus Gentile kind of arrangement and how, how their preconceived ideas and how things were working. It was not that way anymore. Chapter three, wonderful. Wonderfully justified. Talk about justification. And clear, clear, clear. So many people go through their lives, they hope they're saved. <laughs> I hope I'm justified. And the Bible is just so wonderfully clear on this. You don't have to wonder how or, or if you are justified. Chapter 4, we talked about it's always been by faith. It was never by works, always been by faith. Chapter 5 talks about justification. It's a gift. And I think it's six times in that chapter it says gift, gift, gift. And uh, so it is absolutely a gift. It's not by our works. And again, Book of Romans nails it. No question about it. Very clear. Chapter 6, free now to serve. Free to serve. We're not, we're not in bondage anymore. We're now free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, Paul highlighted the fact that we need a deliverer, which is really good to be reminded of. Chapter 8 talks about, and this is, if you like, if you like waking up, and I think we all like waking up. But when you wake up and say, this is a brand new day, and God has written it wide open for me. Let's see what we can do. Chapter 8 talks about that. Our life, our destiny, our choice. Chapter 9 talks about God's plan of perfection. Chapter 10 was, whosoever means you. Incredible book, wonderful book. Chapter 11 is, I've entitled it, Grace in Spite of Rejection. Grace in spite of rejection. We're going to start 
by reading uh, the first, uh, oh, let's see, five verses of Romans chapter 11. And we might read all the verses, might skip a few, try to cover them, but it is a long chapter. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1 through 5, it says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what, answer, what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that's ours to be in your house. And Lord, we, we are in constant awe and admiration and reverence of the word of God. It is the light unto our path. It's a lamp unto our feet. Lord, we're just so thankful for all that it has for us. Father, we pray that you'd bless your word today as it goes forth. And Lord, as always, we pray that if there be any here today that have not yet repented of their sin and trusted Christ as their Savior, Father, we pray that this would be the day of salvation. Lord, we invite you to do a work that only you can do. And we ask that you'd speak to our hearts, draw us closer to thyself, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have uh, grace in spite of rejection. This is it's, it's such a terrific chapter. The first point, the first five verses, is rejected, but not fully. And I want to say it a thousand times during this sermon. I won't, that's an exaggeration. If you heard... If you've ever been exposed to replacement theology, replacement theology is a theology, it's bogus, fake theology that says Israel, God's done with them, and now uh, the Gentiles, church, whatever you want to call it, they're grafted in. Not true. And it nails it so clear. You can't, if you're a replacement theology adherent, you've got to avoid Romans chapter 11 because it smashes it. Look what it says in, in verse uh, uh, under the topic, the point of rejected but not fully, in, uh, in verse 4 it says, uh, Elijah, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am alone, and they seek my life. What saith the answer of God? Of course, referring back to Elijah, and he did. He said, I'm all alone. There's nobody here. It's just me, Lord. Because that's all he could see. But God said, no, it ain't so, Elijah. There's 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. Well, that's encouraging to know. You ever feel like you're alone? Oh, no one else is standing up for you, Lord. I've never really felt quite like that. But sometimes you feel alone in certain topics and that kind of thing. You feel, oh, I'm all alone. God said here to Elijah, I, I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, and so he uses that as a reference. And Paul opens up the chapter by saying, Hath God cast away his people? I'm just in case anybody wondered. And he says, God forbid, verse 1, for I am also an Israelite, verse 2, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. He didn't do it. It's amazing. Some people say, oh, yes, he did. Well, <laughs> what do you mean, yes, he did? Paul directly asked that question. Hath God cast away his people, which he foreknew? No. I, I don't know how replacement theology exists, even in secret in the back corners of rooms. It has no basis in scriptural truth. 
Verse 5 says, even so at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. So we see the Jews, they are rejected, uh, not because God providentially, regardless of their behavior, said, I just don't want you anymore. It was because of their diligent religious disbelief. And they did it religiously. I mean, it's just so constant. They, God was gracious. God was very patient. And, and by, aren't you glad God is patient? I'm so glad he's patient. And I'm not saying I'm so glad he's patient because, you know, you're still here. I'm saying glad, God, I'm glad God is so patient because I'm still here. You know, we need his patience. We need his grace. And he demonstrates throughout history his patience. But he also demonstrates throughout history he means what he says. He says what he means. Whatever he says he's going to do, he will absolutely do, including restoring Israel. So God hath not cast away his people. And in spite of the rejection, they rejected him. And so God, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but God said, okay, you're cut off. And now we're going to do something else. But you know what? It's not something new. It's something I told you about. And we'll cover that in just a little bit. Uh, it's, and so in verses 6 through 16, so the first point is, Rejected, but not fully. Now, here's the other thing. God was not surprised by Israel's response to the, to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was, is the Son of God. He left glory above with the unadulterated, undiluted worship of the angels. And rightly so. The glory and the splendor that is beyond any human comprehension and he left it aside. So he'd put on the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. He walked among men who looked at him and said, well, who are you? Now, many believed, but many didn't believe. Matter of fact, there's many that spat on him, and they were there at his crucifixion. They were there and standing in front of Pilate, crucify him, the son of God. He knew this was going to happen. And in God's mind, he knew that in eternity past, sin must be paid for. You know, it's interesting. I'll just tell you this very quickly. I, I told you about a lady who I had the opportunity of leading to Lord about four or five months ago, kind of an unusual circumstance. It was just an awesome, awesome moment. And just this week, I, providentially, I almost said coincidentally, but providentially, had another talk with her. We talked about the sacrifice. And the point was with the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, the offerer, if you had a sin, if you were a sin of transgression, sin of omission, whatever it may be, you'd many times bring an animal into the temple to be sacrificed. And when you brought that goat or bullock, whatever it may be, into the temple to be sacrificed, you would lay your hands on the animal, symbolically transferring your guilt to the animal. And then you would remove your hands, the sword would come down, and the animal would be slain. Now, if you like animals, I love animals, you say, wow, that's not very pretty. And it's not very pretty. It was terrible. But what the Jewish mind understood was sin must be paid for. Blood would be shed. Something's got to die. And so the sacrifices, millions of time in, in the eyes of the Jews, this has happened. At the, at the dedication of the temple, previously with the tabernacle and various other places, it was hundreds of thousands, millions of times, this picture, this object lesson was performed in front of the eyes of the people. And so they knew my sin carries with it a blood penalty. See, that's kind of graphic. Yeah, it is. Why aren't they doing it anymore? This is my point. That's a good question. 
Why aren't they doing it anymore? Because Moses commands this. And the reason why, providentially, God has ordained that this doesn't happen anymore because Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So when their rejection came along, it didn't catch anybody by surprise, certainly not God. And in verses 6 through 16, we see rejecting, but now fulfilling. In other words, so Israel rejected. You might say, well, that's a failure. What a failure in the plan that is. That'll certainly mess things up. <laughs> not at all. 6 through 16. We're not going to comment on every verse, obviously, but it says, if, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, that's, you might want to reread that a few times when you get some time because it really clarifies this works versus grace uh, dynamic. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Mark that down. They will be restored. Replacement theology out the window. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall, be, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. There's a lot in there. Great passage of study. Some meaty things. But he's saying, basically, oh, they're rejected. And God didn't reject them just by his own volition, regardless of what they did. But God allowed them to go to that they rejected, so God allowed them to be blinded into so on and so forth because of their rejection. And he points out very clearly then the real case, when he says in verse 7, what then? The real point here being is that the Jewish people who wanted, they obtained, they wanted to obtain, verse 7 just to clarify, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. In other words, they wanted to be the spokesman. They thought they were. Matter of fact, the recklessness of them in their behavior and their history, very consistent history, was we're going to do whatever we want. We're going to defile the priesthood. We're going to defile a lot of things. And yet we're still God's chosen people. We can do whatever we want. And God says, not anymore. God, the Bible says in the book of Acts, said at one time God winked at this, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And he says, he's basically telling the Jewish people, no, 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 no. We've reached the end of the, of the line for this, this type of behavior. The Son of God has come. God fulfilled his promise in offering the kingdom to the Jews. He came in through the eastern gate. He came in perfect fulfillment of the chronologic prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9, about 483 years after the commandment to restore Jerusalem will be coming the Messiah, the Prince. And guess what happened? 
483 years after Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, when the commandment went forth to restore Jerusalem, 483 years later, according to one calculation, to the very day of his triumphal entry, Jesus came. And this offer was absolutely not to be mistaken. God said what he meant, he meant what he said, and everything he said he's going to do, he absolutely will do. Israel rejected it. Well, God can only put up with so much. But he didn't reject them to make them fall. God is using. So it's rejecting, but not fulfilling. But now fulfilling. Because what's happening is, by way of their fall, now God is transferring the movement over to the Gentiles, to the non-Jew. The Jews, remnants, Jews will be restored. God has a plan. He will perform it. Absolutely. He's cited just, in this one chapter, he cites it multiple times. So they rejected, but we reap the benefits. We reap the benefits as non-Jews. Any Jews here? Any Jewish people? Jewish blood? Okay. We are reaping the benefits of this. And so it's a wonderful truth. So it's rejecting, but now fulfilling. God is still completing his purpose through Israel, through this entire time. God has never lost control. You ever feel like you've lost control? How does it feel? I mean, that's one of the worst feelings in the world. I've lost control. It happens sometimes. God has never lost control. And he's our Heavenly Father. He's completely in control all the time. And in this chapter, he's really highlighting the fact that he's always in control. And even when it seems like things are not going, they're going in a way that might disrupt that plan, there's never going to be anything that happens to disrupt God's plan. Verses 17 through 27, the third point is, accepted but not automatic. And this is really, this is just so noteworthy. You know, if you're, if you're, let's say, of a Calvinist perspective, I'm not a Calvinist, and you're to say, you know, this is courts of election and grace. My question, I had this discussion with somebody just recently who was pretty familiar with the Calvinist uh, background. Romans chapter 11, if, if God, you know, chooses and causes, and you know the whole, you may know part of the, 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 the movement behind the this theology of Calvinism. Well, my my just simple question is, what happened to the election of the Jews? What happened? He chose them, and yet then that fell apart. And then God chooses the Gentiles, right? So watch what happens, verses 17 through 27. It says, and if some of the branches be broken off, he's talking to the, to the Gentiles, if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were it grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, Boast not, thy, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. And then which fell, severity, and then which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, pretty interesting, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, 
How much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That, bl that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That whole Israel shall be saved. Not all, not all are of Israel that are of Israel. And so it really gets down to the Israel believing Israel. That's what he's talking about here. Not everybody with Jewish blood running through their veins shall be saved, but true Israel believers in, in God. So I just want to comment on that. But so accept, but not automatic. Here's the main point in this. So I, if you've read it before, you, you, you understand it. Maybe it's your first time taking a look through it. God says this. He says, Israel was a good olive tree. And um, in olive trees, they have a lot of history, a lot of meaning. It's a very clear picture. So they were a good olive tree. Well, because they're cut off, God broke off some branches. This is what he did. Contrary to nature. It's said in here, contrary to nature. You never, no one ever takes a wild olive tree. And a wild olive tree doesn't bear fruit. I don't know if you knew that or not. They don't bear fruit. They're olive trees. They're connected in the same phylum or family, whatever the scientific term is. They're in the same group, but it's a wild olive tree. No one would ever take a branch from a wild olive tree, a negative uh, part, to a positive tied into the good olive tree. No one would ever do that except for God. He took something that could not bear fruit on itself and plugged it into something that, that thereby they can now bear fruit. That's what God did. And that's what he's doing with us. That's what God doing with all the non-Jews. And he also says, talking about the Jews, if they were part of the good olive tree by nature, well, God can graft them in again too. You know, we need to always, always have a heart and a mission's goal towards the Jewish people. There are some people... And I want to slug them in the Lord. <laughs> and if you figure out a way I can slug them in the Lord, please send me an email. It'll make my weekend so much easier. Um, when they say, God's done with Israel. Matter of fact, they, what happens is, and this is why it bothers me, this is why I take it kind of personally. I don't mind theologically if someone's confused. That's okay. God's going to straighten us all out someday on some points anyway. Uh, I don't mind... Theologic confusion, maybe some smaller points of, of disagreement. I'm okay with that. But when in your heart and in your mind you've concluded that those people over there are to be hated, now I have an issue. Because we're to love them. Are they reprobate? Totally reprobate. If you have evidence of their reprobate condition even more than I know, tell on. And I'll agree with you 100%. One thing you'll never convince me of is that God's done with Israel. Never will. They, I mean, to assume that God's done with them because they're reprobate would, to make some inference that they never were reprobate before. They've been reprobate since the start, you know, for all practical purposes. God has a plan for Israel, and he's going to fulfill it. So the Bible says in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And that means the Jewish people. I can't apply that perfectly to politics, to what they want to do. Should we back them up and everything? I'm not that smart. But what I do know is God meant it when he said, I will bless them that bless thee 
and curse them that curse thee. And what's interesting, I've heard it pointed out before, I'm not a history buff, I, I love history, I love reading about it, is that somebody pointed to the, the, uh, the, the British Empire, the sun never set on the British Empire, and there was uh, something that, uh, part of, uh, a lot of people make the connection with their blessing and coordination with Israel and the diminishment of the British Empire when they took some steps against Israel. You know, you can prove it out for yourself. All I know is God meant what he said and said what he meant. And uh, God is going to restore Israel. Do they deserve it? No. But did we deserve it? Absolutely not. And so we see in, uh, in the next point, starting in verse 28, let me just get there. Verses 28 through 36, accepted in mercy upon all. Accepted. So the, the chapter starts off with so clearly, you know, Israel, they're not cut off. They're not forgotten. They cut off, yeah, but not forgotten. God's got a plan. He's going to bring them right back again. With as much certainty as people can point and say, cut off, cut off, cut off. God's going to bring them right back again. You're going to see it fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. And the point being made to us as Gentiles being grafted in is we should never, and we've never seen this here, but I could imagine someone theologically could say, I'm grafted in. I'm the new Israel. Look at me. Aren't I wonderful? Well, it's not the case. We need to be not high-minded, but fear, because if God cut them off, he certainly could cut us off also. Last point for today is accepted and mercy upon all. And I changed the outline of the points just a little bit on purpose for this one. Verses 28 through 36. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, for as ye in times past have not believed in God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. And then Paul just stands back and utters this declaration of glory, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. These things are way beyond our ability to, to see and discern that they even exist. And then to even to fathom, how did God even set all this up? But that's why we leave some things with God and we just read and appreciate the things he's given to us. But I finish on this point about mercy to all in verse 32. It says, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. See, a passage like this is good. It's got more meat than for God so loved the world. I mean, both scripture, I'm not demeaning one versus the other by any stretch of the imagination. But what it highlights is the depth in a little bit of the mind of God. He, 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 he knew what was going to happen. He knows, the Bible says in another place, he knows every hair on our head. He knows every thought in our mind. He knows every word as it comes out of our mouth. He knows everything about us. Matter of fact, I don't think God, well, I know, God has never made a mistake. He's never made a mistake. He knows, he knew we were going to be here today. He wasn't surprised by any of that. He knows all of that. And we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a wonderful truth. The depth of it, if someone had some questions theologically on a higher level, chapter 11 addresses a lot of those questions. But the plain and simple truth is, like Jesus said, suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You know, God has seen all, hath concluded them all in unbelief, they might have mercy upon all. And as we apply this to ourselves, we just, like Paul, when he said, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. We agree with Paul on that. You're right, Paul. <laughs> we can never figure that out. But what does this chapter tell us through all the bob and weaving of theology as you navigate through it, is that Jesus loves us. He's the one and only Son of God, the Savior of all mankind. He talks about grace. I want to leave you with this thought. I, I, I want to share this little, I guess, illustration about grace. This is whether Jews, Gentiles. Imagine you are a half a million dollars in debt. Someone comes to you and writes out a check for 500000 saying, this is all for you to cancel your debt. You don't have to do anything, but reach out and take it. It's yours. So you take the money, you pay your debt. You're now debt-free and totally in the clear. What do you have to boast about? Can you go around bragging that you had the power and the skill and the brains to reach out and take that check? Can you talk about what a favor you did for your benefactor taking all that troublesome money off his hands? Does that make any sense? Of course not. You received grace and nothing more, nothing less. You were impoverished. You received riches from another person. The fact that you are debt-free is 100% due to your benefactor and 0% due to you. So as Paul wrapped up this chapter, he pointed out, who deserves the praise and the glory for our salvation? Well, clearly not us. We've received the riches from the resources of God. His grace made it all possible. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This idea of grace and salvation. I grew up going to church, and uh, had positive elements to it. But I never heard this. I never heard that I could know that I'm saved. When I heard that for the first time, it's like, ding, that's what I've been waiting for. Why hasn't anybody said this before? This is the big prize. This is what we're all waiting for, how to be saved. When I heard that for the first time, I was, I was elated. I wasn't a super spiritual person, and I'm not a deep thinker, but that just made sense. Oh my goodness, from the Bible? This is how you can be saved? I'd have to be a crazy person to turn away from that. They're not asking for all my money. They're not asking me to crawl on my knees over broken glass. They're asking me to admit the obvious. I'm a sinner. No problem. Check that box. Totally agree. I'm a sinner. I could give you evidence for it, overwhelming evidence for it. I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for my sins. Absolutely. Never doubted that. I'm thankful for my upbringing for that. Believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second part of the triune Godhead. He died a, 
a vicarious death for me on the cross of Calvary. He died, was buried, rose again the third day. I already believed that. But I had never received him. And so the question that I think God is looking for is, have you? Will you? And will you tell others? Let me ask you, we just, we just bow our heads for just a moment. We hope that message was an encouragement to you. To stay up to date with us, please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC Schenectady. If you would like more information on how heaven can be your home, please visit lighthousebaptist.org slash the gospel.